And Paul was a man who was torn between two. Before him were two equally favorable alternatives, the far better and the more needful. The apostle knew that his purpose for existence was to labor for Christ, and he absolutely loved doing that, even when it meant hardship and toil. Paul's continuation in the flesh would mean that he would bring forth more fruit for the glory of Christ. And Paul's consideration of this created within him that inward struggle. He really did not mind if he lived and labored for Christ or died and went to be with Christ. Either way, Christ was the chief end and goal. He spoke of death as departing and to be with Christ, which is far better. And he also saw the advantage of remaining upon the earth. Therefore, he was in a strait betwixt two. He was between a rock and a hard place in his heart. Paul came to the conclusion that if the choice was left up to him, but we know that it was ultimately the Lord's, but if it was left to Paul, he concluded that it was more profitable for him, or sorry, for others, if he remained. We noticed his Christ-likeness. He always thought of others. And Paul's conviction was that if he was to stay alive, God would use him to further the growth and the joy of the Philippians. That was his confidence. That's where we got to last, last time. Now this morning we move to verses 27 and 28, which really marks the end of the prologue and the beginning of the body of Paul's letter. He moves from the introduction to the application. Let's read the verses together. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Now, one way in which we can study the Bible and pick out and pick up on themes in chapters and books is to look for repetition of certain words. And in chapter 1, we have one word that is repeated six times, a very important word, and it's the word gospel. We have it twice in verse 27. Now, it's first mentioned in verse 5 where the apostle, he commends the Philippians for their fellowship with him in the gospel. The gospel is the basis for any true fellowship. There can be no fellowship, the one with the other, if we have not been brought into fellowship with God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 7, Paul makes mention of the gospel a second time, affirming the Philippians' participation with him in the defense and the establishment of the gospel. There will always be opposition to the gospel. The offense of the cross is unavoidable. Therefore, all Christians will be called on to give a defense of it. The third, third mention is in verse 12, and we read there of the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul knew that God orders all circumstances, and we saw even his own imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel. Then fourthly, in verse 17, Paul he speaks once again of the, the defense of the gospel. He tells believers that he is set, he has planted his feet to defend the gospel against all the assaults that hell and this world throws at it. And that brings us to the fifth and sixth mention 
in verse 27. Now, what is interesting about all these references to the gospel is that they all relate to the Christian and Christian living. To believe the gospel, it stands at the entrance of the individuals coming into the Christ's kingdom. But as we live, we are still to be preoccupied with the gospel, or we can at least say preoccupied with Jesus Christ, for He is the gospel. The entire rest of our Christian experience is living for the gospel and under the influence of the gospel. And Paul makes this charge to Christians in these verses, and that's the message of, or the title of today's message, Paul's Charge to Christians which is really the Holy Ghost's charge to Christians. Now, we're going to consider this charge under uh, three points this morning. Uh, firstly, I want you to notice with me, now there's more points, but I just had to cut them down to three, and we'll think about them the next time in the will of the Lord. We have, firstly, Paul's charge concerning their conduct. Paul's charge concerning their conduct. Look at the opening words of verse 27. And we read there, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. The word only conveys the idea of one essential thing. So what Paul is about to say is important. It's important to those to whom he was writing, and it's also important to us. And since Paul's continuation in the flesh was only to live for Christ, well then it should be the same for the Philippians so this is something important that he's about to say. Now, our four English words, let your conversation be, are one word in the Greek. And we can also read Paul, the charge of Paul like this, only conduct or behave yourself as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Only conduct or behave yourself as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Paul is charging them to live in a way that honors and glorifies the gospel. Our conduct is very important to God. Paul wrote to Timothy about how he should behave himself in the house of God. And he wasn't talking about his behavior in a physical building. He was talking about his Christian conduct as a member of the spiritual temple of God. To think that God is not interested in the lifestyle of a Christian is really a denial of the gospel. And that's what we're thinking here, the theme. This is all gospel-related. To think that God is not interested in how you conduct your lifestyle, Christian, is a denial of the gospel. It reduces the gospel to a mere ticket out of hell, to decisionism, to antinomianism, something that does not impact every aspect of the believer's life and which only affects a change in their eternal destiny, but not in their character. That, dear friend, is not the gospel. It's a denial of the power of the gospel. The gospel delivers sinners from the pollution of their sin as well as their penalty. It is the power of God that transforms a wretch of hell into a child of God, into the image of, or into one who bears the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end of the gospel. So God is most definitely interested in our conduct. Paul is charging them here concerning their conduct. Now this word conversation is an interesting word. 
And I touched at this at the prayer meeting a number of months ago in our series on He is Able. The same English word is found in chapter 3 in verse 20. Now, it comes from a Greek word from which we derive the English words politics, political, or politician. The root word is polis, which means city in the Greek. And the idea there is to be a city or a citizen in a city or a state or to expand it out in a country. Now, citizens have obligations to the city or to the state and to the government in order to be law-abiding citizens. There are civil responsibilities and, and duties whereby you are obligated to pay certain taxes and render certain services. There are parameters and statutes and laws to direct one's life and to keep all in order. And this is a word that had great significance for the Philippians because the city of Philippi, and already I mentioned this in an early study, was a Roman colony. Every citizen who lived in Philippi had special protection under its laws and they had certain provisions that were afforded to them because they were part of that city-state. But along with that, they also had responsibilities as well. They had an allegiance and loyalty that was owed to Caesar because of this binding relationship between Philippi and Rome. And Paul had all this in mind when he uses this word here in application on how we are to live as a Christian. There are certain responsibilities that come upon us as citizens of God's kingdom. We enjoy His protection and provision in that kingdom, but along with that there comes obligations, the greatest of which is allegiance and loyalty to Christ. And when Paul says here, and he charges the believers here, that their conduct is to be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, he means it is to be of such a manner as to be worthy of the gospel. Now don't forget, it's the gospel that makes men holy. It is by the gospel that sinners are made new creatures. And it's by the gospel that we're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and less and less conformed to this world. Our lives, as it were, are to be adorned with the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And now the searching question for all who profess to be partakers of the gospel, for remember that's the aim. It's not simply a ticket out of hell. It's not simply antinomianism, live as you please. It's not simply decisionism, but it's to purify the character. It's to deliver us from the pollution of sin as well as the penalty. The question asked of everyone who claims to be a heavenly citizen, is my manner of living worthy of the gospel I profess? That's a challenge. Or does it deny the power of the gospel because I'm no different to the world? I have not been transformed by the renewing of my mind. In fact, I'm very much like the world. If I never made profession, if I never opened my wife, you know, no one could tell I'm a Christian. And that's what Paul is charging these Christians with, that their conduct, that their con conversation, that it would be as becometh the gospel of Christ. The term gospel of Christ. Are we dealing here simply with 
Christ's uh, person, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. Well, no, here it is an umbrella term, and it's really a summary of every Christian duty and responsibility that's found in the Bible. And so, Paul's charging the believers there at Philippi, and the Holy Ghost through him to us is charging us that our lives that our conduct is to marry, is to be in agreement, is to bring glory and to be worthy of all of God's duties and all of God's commands. Paul charges them that this is how they are to be living. This is the conduct that is required. Every thought, every word, every action is to be conducted in a manner that is consistent with and brings glory and honor to the gospel. Now, before I move on to my second point, we want to analyze this verb. This Greek verb, as we have it translated here, let your conversation be, all one word in the Greek. And the technical term is to parse the verb. And you know, when we do that, that will help us draw out what is meant, and therefore we can glean instruction from it. We're talking about this in the Bible class this morning. This is a hermeneutical principle. We analyze a verse. We get to the root meaning of the word, different things. It gives us layer of instruction and what is meant. First, we notice that this verb is in the present tense. And the impact of this is that Paul is saying every moment of every day you are to conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, not just when you're sitting in church or on the Lord's day. At all times and in all places, this is to be your ongoing manner of living. This is a permanent obligation that is required of the Christian. The verb is in the present tense. But secondly, the verb is in the middle voice. It's in the middle voice. It's not in the passive voice. It's not something that is done to the individual. It's not in the active voice. It's not done by the individual to another thing or another person. Rather, it's the middle voice, and that simply means that responsibility lies on each and every one of us to conduct ourselves in this manner. You and I have that personal responsibility to engage in a manner of living that glorifies and is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't do it for you or to you. Neither can your parents, you yourself, middle voice. You're to take up this challenge, this charge from the Holy Ghost. Third, this verb is in the second person plural. We're parsing this verb, we're analyzing, we're breaking it down. And the impact of that is that this applies to every believer, not a particular individual. This is not merely for some believers in Philippi. But for every believer in Philippi, and by extension, for every Christian in every generation and in every place, for you and me, let our conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Fourth, this verb is in the imperative mood, which means it is a command. It's a charge. This is not a suggestion or a desire or a wish or an option to be taken or left, but a command from the Holy Ghost through the apostle to be obeyed. All just from parsing that verb. Present tense, middle voice, second person, plural, imperative mood, teaching us all these things, this charge concerning our conduct. The story is told of Alexander the Great, 
once met a lazy, good-for-nothing soldier in his army, and he asked the name of the soldier. The soldier replied, Sir Alexander, sir. The emperor said to him, Either change your name or change your ways. And those of us who take the name of Christian to ourselves, is our conduct worthy of Christ whose name we bear? That's the challenge. Either change your name or change your ways. Because the gospel does more than deliver men from hell. It delivers them from their sin and changes them into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's charge concerning their conduct. But secondly, we have Paul's charge concerning their consistency. And this ties in really with the present tense of the verb. Look again at verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Listen, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Paul now charges them that their conduct, or they must conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, whether he is present or whether he is absent. The apostle would not have them unduly dependent upon the influence of his presence for them to behave in a, themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. There's only one whose presence was essential and of the utmost importance, and that's the Lord's presence. Paul, in effect, is challenging them here to be consistent in their Christian conduct no matter what company they keep. Maybe the church at Philippi felt it owed its existence to the Apostle Paul, and, and they maybe felt they couldn't progress spiritually except being under his ministry. And you know, as such, they were in great danger of leaning upon him rather than leaning upon Christ. One man made the comment, if they depended on Paul or any other man, their experience was borrowed and they were spiritual parasites. However, if they were truly Christ, they were to look to Him for their needed strength and wisdom, and through Christ, they would behave in a godly manner. Paul was not their source of grace, and neither was he their source of spiritual strength. Whether Paul comes or whether Paul remains absent, the Philippians are to consistently conduct themselves in a manner that will bring glory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had spoken in verse 25 of his coming to them again, and he, he spoke with it, of it with much assurance, with much, with much confidence. But he didn't want them to build on that. Even if he wasn't released, Paul still wanted to hear of their affairs. He wanted to hear of the things concerning them which was worthy of the gospel, not rumors of trouble and ungodliness. We see here the reality that reports of how members of the congregation are conducting their lives do filter back to the minister. And you might think it doesn't, but it does. Your words spoken in secret. This is not that a minister goes out actively seeking these things. Rather, it's brought to their attention. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that whether I'm, I'm with you or whether I be absent, that I may hear of your affairs, because it's going to come back to me. 
Paul. Paul wanted to hear good reports concerning the Philippians and their walk. Listen to what he records. Reached his ears concerning the believers there at Rome. Romans chapter 1 and the verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Listen, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Good reports come back to the ministers as well as bad reports. What, the, what affairs do others hear concerning us? Is it as becometh the gospel of Christ, the power of the gospel, refining me into the child of God that I ought to be? Now, this point concerning consistent Christian conduct in Paul's presence or in Paul's absence was so important to him that in chapter 2, verse 12, he repeats, repeats this, the same thought. Look what he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He makes it abundantly clear that his absence did not allow them to become lax in their Christian living, nor were they to use it as an excuse as to why they should not be working out the gospel in their lives. And in reality, all that matters is that God is with every believer, for He is the one that enables all believers to do what God requires of them. And so whether you're at home, home by yourself, whether you're in the classroom as the only Christian, whether you're in the office as the only Christian, or whether you're in the car, wherever it might be, and you're cut off from spiritual leaders and removed from Christian fellowship, God is still there with you. He is there to help you conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now, this in no way removes from us the responsibility to come to church and to be with other believers and sit under the expository ministry of a preacher. But when you're away from good Christian influence, your conduct can still be glorifying to Christ, for the Lord is with you. The Lord is in you. But with that comfort comes the challenge. Because he sees all that we do, he's present. Whether the minister or your father, your mother are present. Some are only con consistent on the Lord's day when they're near and among other Christians and in the public eye, but on their own. And in the private, they become so inconsistent in their Christian behavior. Paul charges these Christians to be consistent in his absence as well as his presence. And thirdly, this morning, notice, we thought about Paul's charge concerning their conduct, Paul's charge concerning their consistency, Paul's charge concerning their concord. The word concord means harmony between people. And Paul charges them to pursue Christian unity. Let's go again to our text. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Listen, that ye may stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted to hear good reports of their conduct and concord. This subject of Christi, Christ, Christian unity sorry, is vast. It's dealt with many times from the pulpit. 
The reason why it is, is because it's so important. And yet it's so easily lost. In the study for this I read about one church and they split over the placement of a piano stool. There were those who wanted it pushed in when no one was sitting on it, and there was those who wanted it pulled out. And it split the church. And that's why I say it's so important, and yet it's so easily lost. Our union with Christ means that we are united to each other. This concord is part of the conduct of Christian living that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul highlights two areas in which they are to be united that would be fitting of the power of the gospel. They were to stand together and they were to strive together. Now in Reverend Greer's study in Ezra, we have already been challenged by the Lord in this area of togetherness. And, and here we have it again this morning. But we are reminded from Scripture that to hear the same thing again is not grievous but needful Repetition is good for emphasis and instruction because we are often so slow to take heed and learn. And yet the, the Lord wants to speak to us. So let's think of standing fast in one spirit. To stand fast means to be stationary, not to be pushed around, not to be moved about. The idea, metaphorically, is that you are anchored in a place and you have no reverse gear. That's what it means. You're anchored in one place. Maybe that needs to resonate. One place. Yes, on the ground of the doctrine, we can say that. But one place. Anchored in one place. Let that be emphasized. You have taken your stand and you're immovable because of your convictions in the gospel. You are standing firm. It's actually the stand firm. It's a military term. And it pictures a soldier on duty in battle, and he's there to hold his position. He has been assigned to a certain position on the front lines, and if there's a breakdown in that line, the enemy can slip through. And the enemy is always looking for the weakest soldier in the army. He's looking an entry point to break rank. And Paul is saying, do not let that happen in your fellowship and in your church. You need to stand firm. Hold the line. Do not back down. Do not turn and run. But be immovable in the midst of spiritual warfare. They were not to be carried about with every wind of doctrine, but stand firm. And Paul gives this exhortation to other Christians to whom he wrote. And we most notably read there in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13. It's only back one page possibly in your Bible. Ephesians 6 and verse 13. And we read there, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore. He also writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. He writes in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, back a few more pages, he says there, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul, like an army general, he charges the troops at Philippi to stand fast because the war is on. They are in a battle. 
Now the old adversary, he is trying with all his might and with all the arsenal of hell to break into churches, to divide them, for he knows that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he will do everything that he can to do that. And that includes looking out for that one Christian who's not standing firm, who is lackadaisical in their approach, who is not set for the defense of the gospel, who is not really here by conviction, and is a little out of frank and file with their brethren and sisters. And the devil will probe and go to that individual to break through. He will get at that one individual. This is what he will do in order that he can do an inside job within the fellowship to try and upset the harmony and begin to press around unbelief, a bad spirit, a foul attitude, a little compromise in order to drive a wage between the brethren. It's the work of the devil. And Paul wants, he wants to hear that these believers in Philippi are standing firm in the face of spiritual conflict, that they will not give an inch to the worldly ideologies of the godless society that is around them. I was just reading in the Christian Institute that early this year the Church of Scotland voted to allow ministers to conduct same-sex weddings in its churches. The 2022 General Assembly voted to redefine marriage by 207 the four votes to one, three, six votes. And this means that the Recognition of Marriage Services Act of 1977 will be amended to ditch the words husband and wife, only referring to the parties as each other. Not dear friends, not standing firm. That's going in reverse. Paul says that they are to stand firm in one spirit, in one spirit. Now, in the original Greek, there is there is no capital letters. And therefore, it is possible that spirit could be, could be translated with a capital S in the English. So it's really a translator's decision. They take into account the context, of course, and, and it becomes an interpretive decision. If it's a small s, if they're to stand firm in one spirit, well, then the next phrase, with one mind, it becomes a parallel expression, and it further amplifies what the, what the Spirit means here. The Christian disposition of love and faithfulness which we possess. That's the one Spirit. But, but if it is a capital S, then it signifies standing fast in the power of the Holy Spirit, who endues God's children with the power to stand. Either way, it is the oneness of Spirit that is emphasized. It is an important thing for then they will be able to stand together. Paul also says that with one mind they were to strive together for the faith of the gospel. They were to strive with one another and not against one another, but against the common adversary. They were, they were to have the same purpose. And though this free is striving together, it's, it's one compound Greek word a root word with a prefix. And again, it's a, it's a picturesque word. When I pronounce the, the main Greek word, you will know the English words that we get from it. The main Greek word, the root word is athleto. Of course, the words athlete and athletics. And the prefix, 
prefix it means with. So, so the word here contains the idea of cooperation. A group of athletes cooperating with each other as a team against an opposing team. Now in team sports you can't be carrying anyone. Everyone must be on top of their game if the team is to be victorious. It's not a hard image for these Philippians to understand considering the ancient Grecian and Roman games that were so familiar to them. They were some in Rome who were on a solo run, preaching Christ for their own advancement, for their own reputation, but not Paul. He was a team player, and together they were to contend for the faith of the gospel as we read there. That's a way of saying the Christian faith, the objective standard of truth that was once delivered to the saints. And for them to be striving together for the gospel means that they must maintain their unity. Any division will mean defeat for the full team, or he might say the whole congregation. In fact, that was already a pressing matter and a pressing danger in the church at Philippi, as we read in chapter 4, verse 3. There were two women who were not of the same mind. But listen, when you have two women who are not of the same mind, there were two husbands who can't get along. And when you have two men and two women who can't get along, you have two families that can't get along. And when you have two families that can't get along, you have two sets of friends that can't get along. And before you know it, there's a fracture right down the middle of the church. And do you see why unity is so important? On the micro level as well as the macro level, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's not for our sake, but it's for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake. And this was Paul's charge to them concerning their concord. Now listen, the Lord will never ask His people to do something that He will not give them the grace to do. And we all need to be challenged in these matters concerning our conduct, our consistency, and our concord. But the Lord brings these things to us, to our attention, but He also gives us the grace that we might walk in the ways that He has outlined in His Word. The gospel is the predominant theme in the first chapter. Paul loves the gospel, and it had an effect upon him throughout his days. The power and the influence of the gospel does not end the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not at all. The gospel which is the message of who Christ is and what He has done, it makes an impact all the way through the believer's life. Can I ask you, has it made an impact on you? Have you first believed the message of the gospel? I, dear friend, there's, there's no greater message than the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He has been buried, but that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Christian, does the gospel still make that impact on you? Is your manner, my manner, worthy, manner of living, worthy of the gospel? Are you standing and striving with brethren and sisters for the advancement of it? Oh, that God would continually thrill our hearts with the message of the gospel and draw us closer to Him. And in turn, we will be drawn closer to one another. I did say I had four points, and really 
I was looking, there was five points, but that will keep and carry over verse 28 for the next time. But may the Lord give us that ear and heart to take heed to the charge that Paul gives to Christians concerning their conduct, their consistency, and their concord together. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we thank Thee for Thy Word that is as a sword, that two-edged sword that pierces. And truly, Lord, we're all challenged with respect to our conduct and our consistency. Lord, many of us only see each other at the public gatherings and when all can look well, and yet, Lord, thou art the one who knowest us all together. Help us, Lord, we pray. You bring these things to us, not, O oh God, to crush us down, but to instruct us, to lead us, to help us to live for the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in our concord. Help us, Lord, to be standing firm and striving together, not for our sake, not for the name above the door, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for Him. And we thank Thee for the good news of the gospel that reached our hearts. And there's many in our town and our district and they, they need the power of the gospel in their lives. And I pray that this congregation, this local assembly, will be used by Thee for the furtherance of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom of God. Lord, that's what we all desire. We long to see thy kingdom extended and the kingdom of darkness and Satan driven back. Society to be changed, to be reformed, to be brought, O oh God, in agreement with thy word. This is something that thou alone canst do. And so, Lord, we thank thee for thy truth. And we pray, O oh God, that thou would help us to live in the light of it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people both now and forevermore. We ask this all in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.